Welcome to the Next Generation Politics Podcast. I am Ria, and today my co-host Olivia and I will be discussing media literacy and bias to frame a four-part series on the topic. Today is going to be our concluding thoughts on the issues we have talked about in the last three episodes, and we hope you enjoy. Thanks for joining. was when Professor Schneider literally said, don't be lazy. Having a more unbiased media diet takes intention and takes purpose and takes time and takes effort. And so we can't expect all good neutral things to come our way. We do have to make the effort to look for them, which I think is kind of an implicit message we're getting, but isn't that explicit in today's society. It's just kind of, eh, be lazy. That's kind of okay. So that kind of, that really did stick with me. But then also to the point of Professor Loge, media bias isn't necessarily a bad thing. Bias has existed for a super long time. It's just the impacts are being more felt in today's society because of how polarized it's become. So it's not a new phenomenon, but it's something that we have to put an effort to counter. That was something that also like stood out to me. I think Trump didn't make writing it, and I think that's a good point to emphasize because it's not specifically one party or one person's fault. It's more of it's like media is always going to be a consumer market, as he said. And that's something that maybe you know there's more of a civic responsibility to be informed in maybe a more objective way. And I think something else to keep in mind is that there's always going to be party politics and power politics at play. And I think that's like just the reality of the situation, unfortunately. But taking time to try to make an impact and try to have a voice, having a voice where it matters. And I think Professor Loge really hit it on the head when he said that, you know, Mitch McConnell's not going to care about someone writing something on Twitter in New Jersey, he's going to care about his constituents and give him the power to have such a position that he does hold. And so making impact often means making an impact in a smart way, not necessarily always the loudest way. Again, it's hard to distinguish intentional versus unintentional bias. The statistic is like 93% of all like Washington correspondents are like reportedly liberal, like they vote Democratic. It's, I mean, how balanced of a media pool can you have if people are going to be liberal leaning in their regular life it's an industry you know just like the pharma industry that exists in america and they are going to do what benefits them the most and that's often why i fox news is so hitched to trump is because if they disagree with that administration then who's going to be watching their show it is a very supply and demand type situation but i do also think that there are certain initiatives that can be pushed in the media sphere that can encourage a more objective, I think we're like the height of awareness, like in civic and media responsibility. Like I think even talking about media bias, something that like has not been around for as long as media bias itself has been around. If it is like a supply and demand type situation, mm-hmm. if there is a consumer market, then we as consumers have to be more willing to push for objective media. The irony that someone who's a director of the project on ethics and political communication is also keenly and acutely aware that ethics does not necessarily have to be in the media or have to be the core of media. You make a really good point. It is an industry. Just to relate that to what Howie said, because I think there's a lot of connectivity between the two, I think it's important what we see as journalism and what isn't journalism Mm -hmm. and kind of being able to discern that difference. Blatant lies do not constitute journalism. 
something that is laden with so much bias towards one side, can we constitute that as journalism? I'm still unsure. We need to be better at naming what we're doing and being clear of categorization and intention. When we are skeptical, how can we or arm ourselves with the resources to figure out what is the truth and knowing where to go for that? I don't necessarily think it for of every single piece of journalism has to be ethics, but I think some truth data is typically skewed, but grounding something in a perceived truth is really, really important, and there are things that blatantly don't do that. Naming that difference, we should be able as consumers to recognize that early on. And what Professor Schneider was talking about, you know, every fifth grader, sixth grader, seventh grader should have a course on media bias in their class. I think that's really important because you really hit the point of it's an industry, it's a consumer market. But if we're asking for better, more ethical, more balanced news, then people will want to deliver that because that is how they're going to profit, increase their revenue. You know, what if we did integrate that curriculum and we made a market of consumers hungrier for ethical, more level-headed journalism? When he was talking about like the impact of having objective media, we've seen so many breaking news situations in the last five years of like the news cycle. And we've had like whistleblowers come out time and time and time again, and it captures a news cycle for a couple of days, and everyone's frantic, everyone's like talking about it on, on social media, and then it goes away. We have to make it a point. If we are hungrier for objective media, we have to sustain that, and not only sustain it, but do our part, you know, engaging citizens and civic informants to take whatever facts we have and make our own opinions and continue that discourse because I think often enough the media does or try their best to give us stories no matter how editorialized. We as civic informants have do have responsibility to do something with those facts because I think responsibility as well in our own community to encourage other people, other peers, other students to be politically informed. I think that there's a vast gap between politically informed people and, and uninformed people. There's new shelves in the wars, right? Those, they have consumer markets. They have people watching them. They have their own base. Alex Jones has his own base. He has his own fan page. That's where I think the danger of like media can really, really come to life. A bright line should be drawn. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if that's necessarily a bright line by the government. He like very like Alex Jones very clearly was doing using intentional bias. He backed down as soon as he had like a defamation suit. When it comes to bias like that, that is definitely prevalent, especially that can spread like like rapid fire on social media because there's no there's no filter. That's like where the danger lies. Something else I kinda took to heart was I think we need a little bit of bias in media or at least op eds and opinion. I wouldn't necessarily say discern there was a difference between the two, but I think op-eds are so, so important, especially for people that are seeking, that live in bubbles and echo chambers seeking a different view. Op-eds are really, really powerful, and I think they show the diversity of thought in our country. I also think that there can be benefit in some ways to skewed pieces, whether that be op-eds or things with acknowledged bias. I agree. I'm not saying every single news source has to be the reddest or the bluest ever, the most extreme on the spectrum. I'm just saying I think it's interesting to have different opinions and to be able to say, hey, I don't agree with you, but I'm really, you know, I'm really glad that we live in a country where you can say that and I have the ability to listen to that. Facebook or Instagram or anything, based on trends of what you look at, they give you more of that. Right. You know, it makes sense. And when you look at politically skewed 
articles and content, they will give you more of that. So I was saying I clicked on a Turning Point USA thing once or twice just out of sheer interest, and I was getting, you know, Trump 2020 and a bunch of super, super conservative clips and articles. I was just kind of taken aback by how two clicks led to a flood in my newsfeed and how I had to intentionally click other things that were the opposite side to start getting a more equal and balanced view. And there is an immense danger to that. It's making walls, per se, harder to perforate. I think it's also making us more scared to hear the other view because we're so shielded because of them. But if we had a reverse algorithm to either take away that or to show us things that we wouldn't necessarily see from our own social media bubbles and networks. And I would still say, I don't think it should be a mandatory thing. I think it should be a choice a consumer makes to say, I want to see this. And it's, it takes bravery and it takes courage in many ways. But I do think it's something a lot of people do want. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I had not thought about that. You know, you're like moving further and further right. along this line until it becomes so extreme that it's hard to not recognize. I had the same thing for the 2020 election on Twitter. I was following all of the Democratic candidates and had the yeah. opposite Facebook instant where I was just like, whoa. I think yeah. it also goes back to Professor Schneider, one of his comments that also stuck with me about how one one of these figures who, you know, because a lot of people follow, we inherently trust. It's a it's a human tendency. But right. when they post something that might not be the most ethical or might not represent facts, we just in an instant believe them because 1.7 billion other people put up the thumbs up button. We start putting that trust in the system. There could be some serious implications for us. It's a really smart political tactic to say, hey, I love listening to other things, but to internally know that you don't want to engage and you're just looking for affirmation. At school, like, I like affirmation. I like when people are agreeing with me. So I think he's right in that people do want people to agree with them. But I don't think the two ideas are mutually exclusive and you have to be one or the other. There's a lot of gray. Yes, I, I think agreement is awesome and finding like-minded people is super interesting just to see the nuances of your own perspective through those subtle differences, but, you know, mostly similarities. And I think simultaneously... I love engaging with people with different perspectives. I, you know, is that the youth, every single young person of today? Probably not, but I think it's unfair to say it's one or the other. I think it can be a lot of both where you do like finding your communities, you know, those Facebook groups, like awesome. You like people to judge. So do I super cool. We can fangirl out 110% of the time when we're in that group. I think at the same time, you can be infatuated with discourse and hearing different perspectives. I think he's right in both respects, almost. I think that the thing is, is that I think many people who um, do have, like, a, are, are engaged politically, they, we have our biases in the form of, we think, Democrats think, they're, like, Republicans are just never going to agree with me, you know, why why would I have engaged in that discourse and invest time into that discourse when it's not going to lead to anything? And Republicans think Democrats are Trump haters and they're this and they're that. And like today, they bipartisan senators pushed uh, Trump on, on on background checks. And I think that's like a very, very big step. I, I was really happy to see that because I think for like a long time, it's been 
the rally cry of Democrats to be like, you need to act now. And Republicans saying, I don't want you to take away my guns type situation. And the more that they talked about it, like that's literally what happened. Like the more they talked about Mm -hmm. it and the more they like engaged with what the Republicans were saying, then they basically found their common ground. They basically, you know, take on the president together rather than, you know, I think that's like a powerful moment. And the other thing that I think that we didn't talk about a lot um, when we were were discussing opposing points is I think that having a diversity of whether it be gender, whether it be race or sexuality in discussions, I think is like a very big thing. Uh, Engaging in dialogue with like people of color and not people of color can be like very um, uh, hard to work around and can be, you know, a little bit tough and that's why people don't always do it. Um, but I think ha- engaging in discussions about sensitive subjects like that can also bring to light a lot of things and help people like understand because there's, there's a lot of power in like just like the narrative of a person saying this is what I experience as marginalized versus you know maybe someone who isn't as you know having that kind of issue in life and um, I think that in my opinion like we don't see enough of that in media I think that like often it's like very um, you know, one race or one gender or one sexuality. And I think having, like, diversity of thought is, is important, but diversity, like, just in and of itself is also very important to have in discussions. Something else when you were saying that about the candidates that I thought of was also how cyclical it is. If we were more exposed to different perspectives in the media, maybe via social media, from a very young age, I think it would become less of a quote-unquote scary thing to engage in a dialogue with them and to sit in a room with, I hate this, the enemy, the opposition. Because at the end of the day, we all want, and we have different conceptions of what is best for our country, but we all have a foundational understanding of the country and that we, we are here because we care. Like, I think at the end of the day, people are spewing their perspective because they care. It comes out of a good place. Yeah. When I had my first few meetings of my club, I was like, this is going to go horribly, you know, like people are going to be screaming at each other, but it really was not like that. And I think that that's because it was a setting where it's not, I win, you lose. It's let's, you know, like engage in this and see where we can end up with, if there is a middle ground and this is what I believe in, this is why I believe it, um, mm-hmm. can be a lot more, have a lot more powerful repercussions than I think we give credit is often what we see when we have debates between Democrats and Republicans. That's not, you know, like a very constructive thing. See, it's maybe necessary. And having more constructive dialogue is definitely... We and R are super powerful words in relation to politics and defining your circles and who you're affiliated with and who's outside of that. And I think if we made the others seem a little less scary through what you're talking about, our society could really benefit. It also reminds me, obviously, non-American, but a Churchill quote that I love in relation to this, courage is what it takes to stand up and speak. Courage is also what it takes to sit down and listen. Also emphasizing that we understand sitting down and listening might not be the easiest for you, but we admire your courage, making it seem like a super powerful thing and commending people for something that might seem intimidating at first and celebrating it. That's exactly what I think Peter Lodge said that I really agree with is that in a system today that is quite polarized mm-hmm. and partisan, rewarding that kind of discourse and incentivizing that kind of discourse when you when it comes down to it necessary to encourage it further.